this is 50 years of work. When I went in 73 to Egypt for my first time and also to Ethiopia, so each end of the Blue Nile, mm-hmm. I did not know what I was looking at, but it grabbed my attention. Everybody who goes to Egypt, look at the monuments, and you're in awe of the monuments. You're in awe of these irrepressible figures and enigmatic figures, and you just sort of wonder, how could it be? What does it mean? And you have no idea, how is it that that could be in existence, that you have no idea what underpins it, but yes, you sort of realize it's greater than existence that you have now. So I had to start studying. I had to start learning what it is I was looking at because I did not know. I knew it was important. Chester Higgins, photographer, author of Sacred Nile, coming up on The Janice Adams Show. Janice Adams. As journalist, historian, author, race and gender, glass ceiling breaker, I wanted to do a show that would nurture our spirits, fuel us for the days ahead, to help us make that way out of no way through these trying times. I wanted to do a show about race, every race, and courage. A show where you and I meet public figures we want to know more about, and neighbors from whom we hear too little. Voices, perspectives, insights, we simply need to hear. I love the fact that one critic said of my work, Janice Adams gives us vitamins for the soul. Well, with this episode of the podcast, here's a dose for your day. Hi, I'm Janice Adams. Welcome to the show. It's not often that I begin the show with words, neither my guests nor mine, but this quote from the writer and Reverend Melanie McGant is so on point, so extraordinary. Today, this is where we begin. Sacred Nile is a modern-day holy text with exquisite photographs that help transport us to both the ancient worlds of Ethiopia, Egypt, and Sudan, and the sacred people of those regions. Sacred Nile is also a beautiful archaeological, architectural, and spiritual masterpiece that takes us on a holy pilgrimage down the Nile from Ethiopia and illuminates the universal truth and power of Kemet and Amun. It shows us the influence of the ancients in those countries upon all of humanity, as well as Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. With Photographs by renowned master photographer Chester Higgins with text by Betsy Kissam. Sacred Nile is a book that allows us to revisit thousands of years of wisdom, teachings of Ethiopia, Egypt, and Sudan. It is filled with the majesty of ceremony, the cosmos, the divine in nature, faith, value of ritual, and much more. Our guest today on the show is the recipient of that uber-earned praise, (laughs) photographer Chester Higgins. Chester, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Glad to be here. To begin, let's define our terms. Sacred Nile, the cradle of civilization. Where is Ethiopia? Ethiopia is at the headwaters of the uh, Nile River. The Nile that goes through Sudan and Egypt is fed by two different Niles. One of them come out of what's called the River State, uh, Lake Victoria, uh, which borders Kenya, Uganda, and it starts out at Rwanda, Burundi. And the other, uh, but this water, only 15% of this water gets to the Mediterranean. However, the Blue Nile that starts 6,000 feet above sea level in Ethiopia provides 85% of the water that gets to the Mediterranean, that gets to Egypt. So Ethiopia is at the headwaters, and it's at the headwater of the migration route, too, because in ancient times, the rivers were the highways. That's how people made it from one place to another. So it's easier to walk down along the path of the Nile River than it is to walk along the White, and this is why. When the White Nile enters South Sudan, it goes into a 500-mile swamp. 
swamp. Mm. Imagine a swamp for 500 miles that extends all out. It's not a it's not a it's not an easy way to migrate. So therefore, you have less migration into Egypt from the, along the White Nile than you would have along the Blue Nile. So you get the the impact of the people who who arrived into the desert of Sudan and Egypt arrived from Ethiopia, because it's pretty impossible to arrive into Egypt uh, from from outside of the deserts to the east and to the west. Egypt itself is like a, a plateau that runs along the river with huge mountains on either side of it, and then more desert. The other interesting thing uh, that I must point out, and this has to do with nature, although the water that comes out of the bigger lake of the bigger inland sea of Lake Victoria gets stopped up by this swamp, the divine creator came up with an idea of how to move that water over to Ethiopia. And this is how. It's called transpiration. As the water sits in the swamp, the hot sun beats on that water and causes evaporation. The evaporation becomes clouds that the wind takes over to the east, Mm. to the mountains of Ethiopia, where it rains on Ethiopia 24-7, almost three months. That's the water that creates this surge that goes on for uh, several months. And that's the water that arrives and creates the inundation of ancient times up until 1950 in Egypt. Why 1950? Because then the British built the high dam, which then stopped the uh, inundation. And then after that, in uh, 1965, the Russians completed the great Aswan Dam, which then created this huge several hundred mile long reservoir of Ethiopian water that feeds the Egyptians. This is extraordinary. I mean, just listening to you answer the question. So we're talking about where Ethiopia is, where Egypt is, where Sudan is. This is the cradle of civilization. Where it all began. On the African continent. Right. And the words Kemet and Amun, what do they mean? Kemet is the land of Black people. Kemet you is what the people call themselves. Amen, or Amen, we say amen. And this is an interesting word because we as Christians and Muslims and uh, Judea people of faith use this word and we don't translate it. Uh, we don't change it. And to all of us, it has a, a meaning of absolute authority with the divine. This word happens to be the name that the ancient Egyptian people gave to their ultimate God, the invisible one, the one who is behind the sun, which is the activator of nature, the one who is making everything happen. So in their dialogue with nature, in their dialogue with the the world of the divine, the world of spirits, not only are they the first people on the planet to have a dialogue and leave behind their records, because I'm sure other people had it too, but they didn't leave behind their records. The Egyptians left behind their records in stone. So they had this dialogue and they had a name for this presence of the great creator, Amen. And we, to this day, have this. Now, the Egyptians, our ancestors knew that there will come a time when all of mankind would forget this, especially the Africans' children would forget this. And they were very um, uh, cognizant of this. That's why I think they wrote all of this in stone, because so much has been destroyed. We would not notice if it were not from the stone in tombs, the things that were buried on the ground, not the temples that were pillaged and left and become ruins, but it's in their tombs that they left this intimate information. And then we had to learn how to read it. It's not that it was people haven't seen it. But it wasn't until the end of the 1800s that it was translated. So, and then a body of work became gradually being produced by scholars and researchers. So we now have, we now know that the Egyptian books about Amun, uh, which were started out in scrolls, we have fragments of hundreds of books. That's why I say to people that, you know, what we have now, what I will call the Abrahamic faiths, are really books two, three, and four. Two the book of the Hebrews, three, the book of the Christians, four, the book of the uh, Muslim people. What we don't have is the first book, the book of nature called Amun. That's the book that the Egyptians had. And the Egyptians had a very interesting kind of approach to life. First of all, they were pacifist people. So, and, and their whole thing, their whole books are not about the memories of some disciple 
or the memories of some witness, their books are all about nature. So what happened is that we have lost that information. So therefore, we don't have the access to compare it. And I think that sacred knowledge is the beginning of that because, you know, spirituality is like a river. All of this is about a river, people living on on either side of the river. And the first people who develop a a relationship with the divine and the first people who worship a monotheistic God. Not so, but the enemies of the Egyptians have always talked about paganism. Well, paganism is something that you find among the Greeks and the Romans who tried to do a uh, one better than what was going on. But the, but what, what gives it all away is this. The Egyptians did not hate nature. They did not tell men that nature is for you to subdue. They did not hate women. They did not say that woman has made the original sin and therefore we men can be completely absolved from anything because it's not our fault. So these two fundamental things by, by the Abrahamic religion hating nature it unmoored us. Religion has a great purpose, one that we gives us the uh, some sort of a way to withdraw from the confusion of humanity and find a, a pipeline to reconnect with what is central in everything, and that is that is the Holy Spirit. So the Abrahamic faith took the they took the divinity of the woman that is in the Egyptian faith. The woman is equal to the man. You know, in African religions, they still do this. They believe that you know the woman is half of a father, and the man is half his mother, and that divinity is a balance. It comes together. We exist because of this balance. Which, into the Egyptians, they had a conceptual uh, of, of framework for that balance. They call that maat. They also had, and, and see the and, and the Egyptians, even though they had this religion, this religious understanding of the superiority of the woman, still the patriarchs inserted men in there as well. I give you a perfect example. So their top God they like to always talk about is Antum, who's the one with the double plumes that catches the sun because it catches not only the sun rays that you can see, but the invisible rays that you can't see. He is, and underneath him, he's self-created. So that's how the Bible gets this, these all these paradigms where you're talking about you know, creation stories, which come out of Egypt, the Moses stories, all these come from the paradigms of African people that will repurpose. So you, you get the Atum at the top, and Atum then self-creates a twins underneath him. But what they don't talk about is that Atum represents the sun. But they have this other thing that you have to look for, discover, that there's a conceptual design that represents the woman. And the woman is, I'll give you the image they have. Imagine a long, lean Black woman leaning over the planet. See, they knew the planet was round long before the Dark Ages found, found out about it. Leaning over the planet, but not leaning over the northern and southern poles, leaving on it over the solar poles, east and west. So her foot in the downward dog position, her foot is in the east. Her arms are in the west. Now, why? Her arms are in the west, stretched out in the west, so that she, her arms become the runway at sundown for the sun to enter her body. It has to be recharged overnight. It goes into her body to be recharged. She has a dress that has decorative holes in it and the sunlight in her body recharging at night becomes the twinkling stars. And in the morning, because her foot is on the east, she gives birth to the sun again. So Newt in the Egyptian mind represents continuity, but it also represents heaven. Heaven is an African woman. So if heaven is giving birth to the light, that means heaven, the woman is giving birth to Atum. Everything starts in the black of space, the black of night, which is the which is the purview of the woman. You know, yeah, we've changed it. We now make earth female rather than the Egyptian saying male because the male was inside the womb, the movement because of the woman. So my point is that Abrahamic faith destroyed all of the divinity of the woman. They just took it away. And they said, okay, yes. 
She's the one that was susceptible to sin by the snake, but they never identified if the snake was male or female. But that's another issue. But it's her. She is the cause of everything wrong. So therefore, we men can now do whatever we want to do. We can, we can, we can oppress people by oppressing her and other things like her. We can oppress the animals. We can oppress nature. So as we have Abrahamic faith, essentially, is a is a faith that has a lot of good things about it, but it has fundamental principles of being very ill at ease with itself, so much so that it hates everything around it. It stands alone. It doesn't stand with. Chester, 50 years ago, when you began this photographic quest that comes to us in the form of this book, Sacred Nile, how much of what you're telling us did you actually know and understand? Uh, None. It's It's been a process. This is 50 years of work. When I went in 73 to Egypt for my first time and also to Ethiopia, so each end of the Blue Nile, mm-hmm. did not know what I was looking at, but I, but it grabbed my attention. Everybody who goes to Egypt, look at the monuments and you're in awe of the monuments and you're in awe of, of these irrepressible figures and enigmatic figures. And you just sort of wonder, first of all, how could it be? What does it mean? How is it that that could be in existence, that you have no idea what underpins it, but yes, you sort of realize it's greater than existence that you have now. So I had to start studying. I had to start learning what it is I was looking at because I did not know. I knew it was important. I knew it had many, many layers. It was nothing simplistic about it. I knew it looked like me and I had no idea of this history. I had to start studying. I had to start reading everything I could on ancient Egypt. And that led me into Egyptology. And that led me into more popular books. And then eventually, as I got deeper and deeper, I had to start buying books that were no longer in print from rare book dealers. So I had to invest a lot of money, a lot of time learning and even taking a course in hieroglyphs, trying to get a sense of a touch to try to connect with the mindset, the ancient Egyptian mindset that was responsible for creating all of this stuff that won't go away. Egypt is a very interesting place. It's a place of the living, but the dead won't go away because they left behind so many ruins that the living have to acknowledge and walk around. When we come back, more here on the Janice Adams Show with our guest, Chester Higgins. He is the photographer whose 50-year quest has come to us in the form of his latest book, Sacred Nile. More with Chester Higgins after the break. Here on the Janice Adams Show with my guest, master photographer, Chester Higgins. His latest book is Sacred Nile. It can be summarized, if you can summarize a book that is a 50-year quest, it can be summarized as his search for the roots in ancient Africa of modern faith. But as you heard in the first segment of the show, Chester's curiosity has led him to expand upon the roots of faith, to just give us an amazing history of Northern Africa as a continent, an amazing geography and geology of the region, and it truly informs the book. Chester, you open the book. I mean, the opening to the book is actually the cover, which is the Nile. It has these rises on either side and the sun setting into the backdrop. Why did you choose that particular picture of all the extraordinary pictures you have in this book? Why that one? Are you saying you don't like it? (laughs) 
I'm saying I think it's exquisite. <laughs> uh, thank you. <laughs> this picture is a picture I made on my first trip to Egypt in 1973, shooting with a Kodachrome film and a red filter. And the sun just kissed the top of the mountain to me in such a magical way. Now, let me tell you, 30 years later, I realized that that image is also a glyph image. It's a glyph image about horizon. And then in the, in the 15, 1600s, it was, a, it was what led Akhenaten to make his holy city, Amana, because the sun fell on the mountains in that particular way. Wow. So I knew none of this in 73. All I know is that the spirit speaks to me when I photograph, when I follow it. And that was the image that came out of that take. And I said, you know, uh, I didn't know it then, the significance of it, other than aesthetic. But as I, but as years went by, I learned that there was a spiritual significance. So to me, that was a marriage. And people don't have to know that to appreciate the picture. It's a visual and spiritual marriage that sums up the spiritual location. Because what I'm doing is I'm localizing the, the beginning of religious imagination in a place where it first began. And I say in the beginning of the book, you know, I'm trying to do a portrait of the sacred imagination, which is like, you know, trying to do a picture, a portrait of smoke, but it exists. <laughs> so <I'm trying> to... <laughs> but not quite smoke and mirrors. That's not, the difference. No, 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 no. <laughs> Smoke and mirrors. No, because, you know, I'm trying to get into the head of people who developed religion. A body of thought. A body of religious thought, of sacred spiritual thought. Um, it was their way of trying to, and, and they, they were, and, and, and these were divinely inspired and they tried to make these useful because I think that fundamentally religion is about giving us a moral compass because, you know, we humans, we're very nice people. I like us. I like being human, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> I like some of us. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, we humans, <laughs> absolutely. Please, <laughs> we, let, we me, let me not be too ethereal here. Uh, I like yeah, some yes. of us. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> absolutely. You know, what is that What is that phrase? You can't do with them, you can't do without us. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> but, you know, fundamentally, we humans are defective by nature. We are flawed. We don't really like each other. We don't like ourselves and we have a jealousy of what understanding other people can have if we don't have it, you know, the not invented here kind of thing. And I think the early religious or the early spiritual fathers understood this and tried to come up with a way to get inspiration from the, the spirit to how can we, and this is what the Egyptians say in their writings, how can we take this unbalance among each other? and learn how to replicate the balance of the cosmos among human society. So the cosmos became where they went to get knowledge. They looked at the stars. They, the, you know, they are the first astronomers. They gave us the first astrology. And, and you know, the Greek changed the names of it, but it was them. They looked for the stars and they looked for the movements of the heavenly bodies. They give them some suggestions because they said, "Look, you guys are not running into each other. You're not colliding and causing, you know, big fireballs in the sky every day, every night. So, you know, that must be a that must be something in the divine plan that allows." allows the heavenly bodies to maintain balance and peace among each other. How is there a way that we can learn some of that secret and apply that to human society? That's why the Egyptians were the first one to create a civilization, not a group of, you know, which means more than just a group of hunter-gatherers over here, hunter-gatherers over there, and they meet together and they fight. But no, they created a society. They created a civilization that lasts 5,000 years, longer than the people who ripped them off. All of the European countries, even the Persian Empire, did not survive as long as they because they felt themselves being a part of nature and they had an understanding of human psyche and a way to marry those things together. That's why every book that we look at in religion is not an original book. It's a copy off of the Egyptians. The Old Testament, the Egyptian creation story, is predicated upon a victimized population escaping Africa, escaping Egypt, and then going to the wilderness. And for 40 years uh, in the desert is because of this. The Egyptians, their weakness was at times ego. Ego and spirit is always a struggle, no matter what 
epoch you live. So ego at at certain times in their history cause a breakdown and disagreements that turn into theological wars that usually revolved around secession from one family to another who was going to rule. Oh, succession. Succession. Chester, we're talking about your book or we're talking about the inspiration behind your book, Sacred Nile. It is said, a picture is worth a thousand words. As you have decided on these pictures, let me just be be really specific. Is there one, one, that's a ridiculous question, but is there a page that you can tell me to turn to right now that captures this story that you're telling me, this history that you're telling me, in a way that we can anchor it in your book? Well, you know, Egyptology is too vast for that. <laughs> <laughs> it's too vast for that. It uh, is I, too I, vast for that. Nevertheless, I am looking at page 117. Okay, 117. Now, this is a rabbi. This is from the, the, you know, the Ethiopians call them Kassims. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, the Ethiopians have two different feelings about their Jewishness. First of all, you know, unlike when we grew up in this country, since everything is racialized and, and Blackness is politicized, uh, we... And the, negated. This, but, and, and negated. Right. We have assumed that all the Jews were white, where that's you know not the case. Now, you have, you know, you have Jewish communities that today have been able to prove uh, their connection with their chromosomes uh, that exist exist in Uganda, Nigeria, uh, Ghana, uh, and nobody's questioned the Ethiopians. So the Ethiopians, the, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people of, uh, of Egypt, there's a legacy. Everybody has their own legacy. The Ethiopian Christians tell you that the first time that Jewish presence in, in Ethiopia happened was 1000 BC because Queen of uh, Makeda, who they, the Bible called uh, Kendaki, Queen of Sheba, went to Jerusalem and uh, Solomon had uh, his way with her and she became pregnant. And when she returned home, she had a son called that she uh, called Hakim, who later, once he came to the throne, his throne name was Menelik I. That is the line that Haile Selassie and all of the Christian rulers say that they are connected to. And excuse me, Haile Selassie being one of the longest reigning rulers of contemporary or modern Ethiopia. The last emperor of Ethiopia, who I had, the, the, uh, who I was fortunate to be able to photograph and see and, and be around mm-hmm. for a week in 1973. Wow. And Haile Selassie, what people also don't know, Haile Selassie is the father of independent Africa. Why? He and Kwame Nkrumah met together in Kwame mines. Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana. Of Ghana. Haile Selassie had the only army in Africa that Europeans did not have an embargo against selling arms to. So Haile Selassie would buy more arms than he needed for his armies. And he would invite all of the freedom fighters to come to Ethiopia. His army would train them into bomb making, everything. Let's just stop for a moment because for people who don't know the history and don't know the story, and frankly, a lot of people do not because the story has been so suppressed, that history has been so suppressed. So when you talk about this period of time when Selassie, Haile Selassie, the the last emperor, emperor of Egypt, you're seeing him in 1973. For those who don't know, he went to the League of Nations, which is the precursor to the U- to the UN uh, as <clears throat> the last standing ruler of an African country, an African empire, and he is Ethiopia was therefore the only country that was not conquered by Europeans during the era of colonialism. So that's one thing that we just need to make clear. The next thing that needs to be made clear is when you speak about uh, Nkrumah. And Ghana, we're talking about the era immediately following World War II, when African nations are actively taking back their independence from European decimation under colonial rule. So that's the period of time that we're talking about. Yep, that's the context. So the second story Ethiopian Jews have about their uh, arrival in Ethiopia uh, is this. People say that the Ethiopian Hebrew community, they don't call themselves Jews. You know, Jews is a European construct. They said that Ethiopian Hebrews came down the Nile, came up the Nile rather. And there's- From? 
from well, where? We do know from reading Papyrus that there was a Ethiopian garrison in Aswan during the time that the Persians invaded. This garrison was placed there. I forget the name of the uh, uh, maybe it was Nechenobo, the, the pharaoh at the time, I forget. But the garrison was placed there to protect this southern flank. Now, we do know from, uh, from Papyrus that during this particular time, for some reason, the Jewish garrison was sympathetic to the Persians who were invading Egypt. The Jewish garrison, meaning the Hebrew garrison of the yes. time? And right. what time are you talking about, once again, just for context? I, I guess if you Google the Persian invasion of Egypt, it would, it would come up. But what's interesting is that in this particular papyrus, when this happened, it says that the local population rose up and rioted against the garrison. So we don't, we it does not say, uh, it, it say they escaped, they went south, but it did not say that they went to Ethiopia because between Egypt and Ethiopia is Nubia. You the find per, it? The Persian invasion, <laughs> invasion of Egypt was 525 BC. Okay, so this is the time we're talking about. So we know from their own, because they had a huge temples in Aswan at that that was there along with the garrison. Uh, and we know that they escaped south, that evidently the uproar, the rioting of the local population was so great that they could no longer live there. So now Ethiopians say that their people came from, from that migration, but we don't know. All we know is that there was a there was a blow up. The people, it was so bad that the, that the Hebrew uh, garrison had to decamp, but where they went, we don't know. But there's no, there's no, evidence behind, left behind to say that now that's, it's, it's oral history in the heads of people, but there's nothing we can confirm. When we started this part of our conversation, it was because I had asked you to look at page 117 in your book. And on the right side is the rabbi, obviously uh, yep. a man of uh, an African man reading the Old Testament. He's in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, year 2019. But on the left side of the spread, which is what caught my eye about maybe this spread capturing the story, the history that you've been telling us, on the left side of the, the spread, it says Kemet, entrance to the 3,300-year-old mortuary temple of, of Seti I, West Bank, Luxor, Egypt, year 2007 is the photo. And then there is a, a statue of a man standing in the, like a, a gateway. Yeah, the str a striding yes. image of, of Ramses the Great in the temple. Exactly. And it says, standing of a striding image of King Ramses II, the 19th dynasty, and he's in the courtyard of the temple of Luxor, East Bank, Luxor, Egypt. And I just, it just seemed to transit. Yeah, you see, that is a is a turn. When history turned from, from the left page to the right page, that, yes. is, that is the initial turn. Yes, yes. yes. And, um, but I was asking you, for some of the photos that you would like us to know about in, in this. This happened to in, in your book, Sacred Nile. That happened to be one that I had marked. Oh, nice, nice, nice. Well, and then on the page before that, on a, a page which would be 115, is the temple where you saw the statue of Ramses, the striding Ramses. It's, it's the temple of Luxor, actually called... Uh, if it's suit, it's the uh, by uh, and made by uh, constructed by Tutankhamun's grandfather as a temple to the sun. This is what gave Akhenaten all of his ideas, and it was made and and it represents something too, because see, there's another major temple in Luxor. It's a temple to the father, and the father is Amun. That is the biggest temple, and this and there was this collision of uh, ideas between. Amenhotep III, uh, Akhenaten's father, uh, Tutankhamun's grandfather, and the priesthood about how to democratize uh, the faith. Because the priesthood, like all church people, they sort of want you to always come to them and give them the money, give them the praise. You have no way to do this outside of them. For some reason, um, Amenhotep III uh, was more generous than that, and he wanted to somehow... Uh, he saw this as a, a stranglehold on the spirit of the people. 
uh, because, you know, uh, if you didn't have enough money, you couldn't go into this temple, you couldn't do stuff. What were the common people to do? So he decided that access to the sun, anybody can just bow to the sun. You have access. You don't need to go through a priest. And he made a temple to that effect, a temple with no roof with surrounding columns and porticos, but in the middle of the temple is no roof. It's the sun pouring in. So that was his political statement away from the, the status quo temple and the priest that, hey, you know, we, we're going to do this. And then how he connected it, he says, okay, since I'm Pharaoh, I'm instructing you priests at the, the house of the father, I'm in Karnak, to once a year when the Nile is full of water, we want a ceremony that shows a rejuvenation. So I want the Holy Family. And the Holy Family was a, was Kamun, Mut, uh, Kunun, Mut, and Amun. I want them, I want their statues paraded from Karnak to this Temple of the Sun, Luxor. And, and let it stay here for a few days so people can come and just enjoy themselves as it, in the middle of the sun courtyard and then take it back. That was a ceremony called Opet. And you see this ceremony in stone left behind, not only in Ipetsut, uh, the Luxor temple, but you also see it in the in the temple of Kar and the temple of Karnak, the temple of Amun. This was a huge festival. There were many different festivals. Egyptians are kind of like the Ethiopians. They have a festival, every religious festival every day, every week, because it was all about you know consuming and being at one with nature. But there were obviously disagreements. And this man set up this whole temple and left behind this evidence of his disagreement with the priest. And his son, later meeting up with these uh, temple priests, decided that it was time to break away completely from them. So he took the faith that his father was building of sun, the dazzling sun, and made his whole faith about what he called Atom, the sun. And he decamped from Luxor, which was called Waset, that the Greeks called Thebes. He decamped his whole administrative palace away from Thebes, uh, Waset, and he, he founded a new city, Akahet, on the horizon. And that's where the sun comes over the, 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 that uh, figure. And it's in this place for a whole generation. And people try to talk about he's crazy, but you know, he was essentially the first Jesus Christ who had money because he was essentially saying to people that you don't have to have money to approach God. God is within us. We are all God. You, it just in the sun, wherever you are, you it, it is you. The first Jesus Christ who had money. Now we can't leave that alone. So when we come back more with our guest, Chester Higgins. He is the master photographer behind the book, Sacred Nile. It is his 50-year quest as a photographer in search of the ancient roots of modern faith. But as you've heard, we're also talking to Chester Higgins, historian. More with our guest after the break. Here on the Janice Adams Show with my guest today, Chester Higgins. He is the photographer responsible for an extraordinary volume, Sacred Nile. It is his 50-year journey through the roots of African faith, African religion, and as you've heard in the past two segments, African civilization and thought. In fact, he begins the book with the journey. And indeed, this is the journey that we have been on through this show. Chester, right before the break, you made reference to the first Jesus with money is what you said. 
And with money, without money, my mind went to my grandparents' home and a photo on the wall that I know was a compromise between them. My grandmother was devoutly Christian, devoutly fundamentally Christian, even though she sent all of her children to the Church of England. And my grandfather was just as devoutly a follower of Marcus Garvey. (laughs) Okay? And so she wanted the picture of Jesus on the wall, and he said, that's fine, as long as you have the real Jesus, the true Jesus on the wall, which was the Black representation of Jesus. Tell us about Jesus as you have come to know the history and story of Jesus from your work, your 50-year quest. Jesus is a, um, and, and now the Bible is sort of, is interesting, it has um, this kind of bipolar because uh, the, the book of the Old Testament is about the an eye for an eye, and the book of the New Testament is about turn the other cheek and love, peace, which was the what, what the Egyptians were all about. But in the history of, of the Egyptian empire, the one ruler who really epitomized that was a ruler called Akhenaten. Akhenaten was all about peace. Akhenaten came to a throne where Egyptians had a, 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 a huge empire that had been set up by uh, one of his forefathers, Tutmosis III. Uh, but Akhenaten did not want to uh, continue that. So he began to turn his back on a lot of the border kingdoms that were really city-states who the Egyptian empire had been propping up. And we see from what's called the the diplomatic uh, uh, cables, which are really tablets written in Akkadian, uh, how people were pleading with him to send arms, uh, send money, send uh, uh, Egyptian soldiers, and how the pleas went on, uh, he would not respond to them. So they even start responding and sending pleas to his mother. They're saying, look, you know, do this, do this. Akhenaten believed in peace. And Akhenaten, I say, was the first Jesus who believed in peace, who had money. Not only did he have money, but he had control of the richest country in the world, the richest empire in the world. So he could do, he could uh, bring about this new religious a feeling that he was having a religion that you knew that unified everybody and what unified everybody was not a idea of one person or one place what unified everybody was this globe as he called the holy orb that that circles that that hovers above us one of the two eyes in the sky you know we have two eyes is from uh, from their point of view as uh, astrologers where we are located, because the question of religion is always about who are we, why are we here, and what is our purpose, whatever religion you're in. And his thing was, and their thing was that we are in our location in the heavens where we have two eyes in the sky. We have a sun, we have a moon. Some planets have two and three moons, but in our planet world, we have one, two eyes. So Akhenaten, in everything he did, he tried to get wrestle his domestic population away from the need to feel that the other was an enemy, which is what in religions can do. So we pledge allegiance to one. So if there's anything different, we must then be to its, uh, it, it must be something that we are against. When we're all under the same sun, you know, Akhenaten's feeling, we're all unified. We're all brothers. We all should be at peace. Now, the Jesus Christ example, which, you know, uh, in different translation, Jesus is uh Yehuda, uh, Jeshua, but the Jesus Christ example is that Jesus Christ, first of all, you must understand history, was a refugee. His family were refugees escaping, which would have been annihilation, ethnic cleansing of all young Hebrew boys, young Hebrew boys. And they escaped and found sanctuary among African people in Egypt. Egypt, they did not have to worry. Whoever the people they were escaping from were not going to come to Egypt and try to take him. He was safe. And there the Egyptians taught him their way of faith, their way of pacifism, their way of unification. And that was great. The story was great. Had he not gone back to his own people where the story didn't end well, he would still be one of the Egyptian. He would be just like any other Egyptian priest. But his message was trying to externalize the message of Egypt. So when I say that Akhenaten, his changing, he revolutionized society 
but it only lasts as long as he was living, which is about 20, maybe 25 years. Same thing with Jesus. Jesus revolutionized people in the border countries across the horizon, but that only lasted too, for some 20 or 30 years. There is, as the Egyptians say, this, this, uh, there's a need for balance because the struggle always is between the good and the evil, or between the ego and the spirit. The spirit gives birth to all of us, but then once, once the, the mind gets outside as produced by the spirit, the mind begins to think that it is not no longer complementary to the spirit, but in competition with the spirit. And that's how we get destructed egos. So I think that uh, the Egyptian religion believed that. Akhenaten is a perfect example of what we now learn in the Bible that Jesus Christ was trying to export. And the Ten Commandments that come out of the Bible, they came directly from Egypt. The Egyptians have what they call in this moral compass. They had what's called the 42 negative confessions that you have to declare your innocence after you die if you're going to get into heaven. Pass. Uh, what they call Asar, who's dressed in white, which is the color of mourning. The the uh, Hebrew faith took not 42 of those, but 10 of them. But you'll see when you read, if you read uh, the, the book of, uh, they call it in this culture, the book of the dead, because uh, by mistake, they, they saw all these dead people had the same book in their casket. So they call it the book of the dead. It's kind of like a hundred few years from now. If we have a tradition of putting the Holy Bible in our graves and somebody, some archaeologist comes up 500 years from now, so yes, the book of the dead. No, but the negative confessions is what you should, you should Google. What is the negative confessions? What is the declarations of innocence? When you read those, you would then see what they are in your Ten Commandments. And so this story, this particular mindset of trying to keep us humans who are born defective by nature and completely uneasy with ourselves and each other, trying to give us something that we can all agree upon in addition to the fact that we can all see the sun is up there. Now. Extraordinary. But Chester, I'm just really struck by this. Um, This interview that we have had, this visit that we have had, that took us on a journey that was unexpected for, honestly, the way I thought this show would go. But I'm still selling sacred now. (laughs) Thank you. That's exactly the point. selling sacred now, y'all. It's all in there. Exactly. It's all in there. And, And Chester has promised me during the break that he is going to come back and do a second show in which we not only sell Sacred Nile, but in which we actually visit Sacred Nile in in this extraordinary journey that he has given us that begins with his line, we humans worship ancient memories in search of a divine future. And then he goes on to say, Sacred Nile is my portrait of the spiritual imagination and the genesis of faith in Africa. Chester, you close the book with this image. Along the banks of the River Nile, Egypt, 1979, and with these words, in the mystic traditions of different religions, we found a remarkable unity of spirit. Spirit is eternal. Journeying with you across the 50 years of of your quest, more than 200 pages of this book of photographs, you've taught us so much about what we should, what you've learned. But I want to ask you, what more should we know? You know, what I've taught you, not only what we should learn, but I've taught us who we are. See, we African-Americans are not spiritual people by accident. We are very devout Christians. We are very devout Muslims. We are very devout Hebrews. We are very devout African religious. There is a reason. No other people are like us. We are obsessed with faith. And I'm saying I've discovered why we are obsessed with faith. It's in our DNA. We are the people who first developed faith. And this is the story of that development. This is where it happened. This is among the people that it happened. And it's in Africa. It's in us. Even 
when I studied, I studied um, West African religions, which people say are quite confusing because they can have all these different names of gods and what have you. And then I studied Egyptian religion and I realized that Egyptian religion was like a quilt. And in a culture where people are, are non-literate, they come in for that experience and they leave and they take parts of the quilt back with them. And they may rename the quilt. It's like Je- Jeshua was renamed. They may rename the quilt. They may even recolor the quilt. But this is their way of trying to bring back pieces of what they found said it all in Egypt, the, the in the most sublime way. We are those people. We are sacred. We do not need white missionaries to bring us the slave Bible and tell us to close our eyes and love them for hating us. No, we didn't need this from them. They got it from us. They got the original from us. Now, we understand that the original thought came from our minds. Then that changes how we respond to stuff. We own it a different kind of way. And then we can also weed out the other stuff that we can, that we always suspected was kind of strange. Weed that stuff out, walk around that stuff, but stay with the source because we we understand the source and our bones and our DNA. And it's no, it's not an accident. We didn't know that because we've been disconnected from this historical truth. It's been... Uh, censored by history, by people who didn't want us to have that story. But once you have that story, and then with the book, yeah, I could tell you these things, but then it's not evidence. It doesn't help you unless I show you what I'm talking about. So once you see the evidence, then you don't have to, you, you, you can understand, you know, crazy arguments when you hear them, or you can point to the person with you. Well, look, explain this. Well, did you know about this? Did you know about this? Well, this is what this is. It's there. But it took me 50 years of learning almost everything to figure out where in the water of 50 years or 5,000 year history, where to dip and what was significant to that understanding and work on that and ignore what is not what is insignificant because it's your history, it's our history. We deserve to know who we are. We deserve to know who we are. Chester Higgins, thank you so much for being my guest on the show today. It's been extraordinary. Thank you. My thanks to our guest and to you for joining us here on The Janice Adams Show today. For links to my guest, his work, and more, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. That's J-A-N-U-S Adams.com. In cooperation with WJFF Radio Catskill, post-production Jason Dole and Patricio Rubio, this show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, All Rights Reserved. Twenty-eight-year-old black male who enjoys reading your writing came the letter to my email box. I would like to request from you a reading list of recommended African American books that will help to open my mind. Sincerely, a student of life. I understood where he was coming from. I knew what books had done for me. How the right books had opened my mind and opened doors. Indeed, whenever I give a talk, someone will inevitably stay behind to confide, if only I'd known, to ask, why didn't anyone tell me to say thank you for helping me to break through the code of silence on a vast world of experience, ideas, and possibilities. Well, that email and some of the people that I've met at those lectures inspired my list, 50 books that change the history of African America, and you can download your free copy from my website. Just go to JaniceAdams.com, J-A-N-U-S-A-D-A-M-S.com, and click on Books and More in the menu. For more about the podcast, my books, speaking engagements, you know what to do. Visit JaniceAdams.com.